Well, to begin today, since we have been preaching through Mark's Gospel for some time now, and will continue through Lent and Easter, I think it's important and helpful for us to get to know Mark, the author of this work, the one through whose eyes we see Jesus. So let's take a pause here in the action and get a little bit more background. We first meet Mark in the Bible in a very interesting situation, even before he writes this gospel. We find Mark first in the book of Acts, chapter 12. Remember that? It is the third time that the apostle Peter was imprisoned. This imprisonment would have ended in his death, in his execution. Except that an angel intervenes. It is a great story to read or reread. So an angel comes and awakens Peter, who quickly jumps up and leaves his jail cell, wandering right past the jail guard, and then through an iron gate that has mysteriously opened by itself. Peter thought it was a dream until the angel disappears and he's left standing by himself in the middle of the street. What to do now? Where to go? Well, he runs to the only safe place he can think of, pounding on the door of this house, pleading to be let in. A slave girl named Rhoda recognizes his voice and opens the door. He is well known to this entire household. The fledgling church had met many times in this house for prayer. The owner of this two-story house within the walls of the city of Jerusalem is a woman named Mary. Her son is John Mark, the author of this gospel, who grew up in truly extraordinary circumstances. Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, one of the first missionaries of the early church. Now, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement or helper. And the Bible's Barnabas recognizes and encourages the work that he sees God doing in people all around him. His early experiences of following Jesus changed his life forever. Mark follows suit. The early church fathers agreed that Mark wrote his gospel while he was a companion of Peter, and that Mark's gospel is, in a sense, a memoir of Peter's remembrances. So there is an immediacy and a sense of presence within Mark's writing unique to this gospel account. Mark acts as a mirror, reflecting the meaning of Jesus' ministry in ways deeper than words. In remarkable ways, Mark teaches us how to listen to the very voice of Jesus. Mark never mentions his connections. In fact, he never mentions his own name in his gospel. So when we listen to this gospel, we place ourselves at the feet of one of Jesus' closest earthly companions. The conversations that we hear from Mark are not for our ears only. They're also for our hearts and for our living. This applies particularly well to our passage for today. There's much more than just a back and forth dialogue going on here. It is easiest, I think, for us just to start with the punchline. There is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. So Jesus' dialogue here with the Pharisees is focused on one issue far deeper than diet alone. The concern is not about particular details of a purity laws about what is to be consumed, that purity might mean keeping your distance from unclean people 
or different kinds of food, what defiles us are things that we do or say, not things that we touch or eat. Jesus' basic point is that purity laws, including food laws, don't actually address the real human problem. And that is what the kingdom of God is all about. So in this teaching, Jesus brings scriptures and the whole covenant to Israel to fulfillment. The Hebrew scriptures speak of purity and set rules as signposts to it. Jesus takes it one step further. So think of it this way. When you're traveling and you finally arrive at your destination, you don't need the signposts anymore. Not because they are useless, but precisely because they were correct. The way of purity, then, is a journey, not a destination. And purity of heart is far more important than any signpost and something that no dietitian could ever cook up. So with all of this, I have two very different stories to share what this might really mean for us. The first story reflects the positive abilities of people to live free and fair according to the gift of God's grace for all. The second story is a deeper story that injects another level of insight into who we are and how we are motivated to act, even in ways in which we are unaware. So the first. In the north of the Netherlands, in a little town, a few years ago, an event caused an international sensation, media attention from everywhere. You might have missed it. As part of an experiment sponsored by the European Union in the early 2000s, the village of Makenga took a radical step. They removed all traffic signs. Down came the directional signs, the speed limit signs, the stop signs, parking indicators, even the lines down the middle of the street were removed. All that remained were signs indicating the names of the streets and a sign at the entrance of the village declaring that the town was, in Dutch, Verkehrsbordfree. I'd love to learn Dutch. What a fun language. Free of traffic signs. That's what it was. So what were they thinking? Why this apparent libertarian insanity? Well, Hans Monderman, a Dutch traffic expert and one of the project's co-founders, put it this way. The many rules that we have strip us of a most important thing, the ability to be considerate. We are losing our capacity for socially responsible behavior. The greater the number of regulations, the more people's sense of personal responsibility dwindles. In the right context, he believed, allowing drivers a significantly greater degree of liberty in determining their driving habits would also heighten their sense of responsibility, increasing their consideration for others sharing the road with them. The results? A lower traffic speed average compared to when the signs were up, and dramatic declines in traffic accidents. Well, some other larger towns in Holland and around Europe followed suit. It is now, as I understand it, part of the repertoire of urban planners, pretty much worldwide, simply called shared space. Well, that's one case study predicated on the premise of people's ability to live without strict rules and to benefit from them. It is surely a very limited sample and perhaps paints an all too rosy picture of human nature, but there it is. Now here is another story of a different sort, one that peers down deeper into our individual souls. 
examining parts of ourselves that we are not fully aware of. It is a story from John Shea, a Catholic priest from Chicago, and one of the best storytellers ever. This one goes way back. My guess is to the maybe the mid-1950s. He's a little bit older than I. It appears deeper into the human soul than we usually think. Just listen to him. Every night when my father came home from work, he would do the same thing. I was six, and every night I watched him. We lived on the second floor of a two-flat in Chicago. I could hear him coming up the stairs before I could see him. When he came through the door, I was there. He would pat me on my crew cut, take off his hat, and plop it on my head. It would slide forward over my eyes and sideways over my ears. All this was done while he was walking, while he was making his way back toward the bedroom, while I was following, pushing my hat back to see. My father was a policeman. He carried a gun and a holster at his hip. It was not slung low like the cowboy gunslingers in the serials I saw at the West End Theater on Saturday mornings. It rode waist high. Once, as we were walking toward the bedroom, I asked him if he could draw fast enough with a gun that high. It's not like that, he said. On the top shelf of the closet in my mother and father's bedroom was a wooden safe. My father had built it to size, and it was a snug fit, perfect height and perfect depth. On the shelf next to the safe was the key. With his back to me, my father would open the closet door, take the key off the shelf, and open the safe. Then he would take off his belt and holster and take the gun out of the holster. The holster and belt then would be rolled up and stuffed way back in the safe. Then he would open up the cylinder of the gun. The bullets would slide out into his free hand. He would put the bullets in a dish that was inside the safe. I could hear them clinking as they rolled and settled into place. Then he would put the gun in the safe, lock it, and put the key on the shelf. This is what he would do every night after he came home, and as I watched. One night, after he had put the bullets in the dish, he turned and walked over to me. He was holding the gun by the barrel. Without saying anything, he offered me the handle. I took it. Its heaviness surprised me. My arm fell to my side. I quickly heaved my arm up. It was all I could do to keep it upright. My father took it out of my hand, opened the cylinder, and rolled it. This is where the bullets go, he said. When you pull the trigger, the chambers move. He paused. Do you want to play with it? He finally said. I nodded. He gave me the gun. Don't pull the trigger. I went to the window and pointed the gun at the two-flat next door. I looked at my father. He was watching me, but said nothing. I went over to the bed hid behind it, then popped up and aimed. My father said nothing. I put the gun in my pocket and jerked it out, fast draw. My father said nothing. I put the gun in my belt and pulled it out, faster draw. My father said nothing. I laid on the floor and took aim. Gunshot sounds came out of my mouth, pow, pow. My father said, are you done now? I nodded and handed him the gun. He turned and went to the safe. As he was locking the safe with his back to me, he said, there, now you don't have to be figuring out how to get at it all the time. 
As John Shea continues to tell the story, his words stunned me. It wasn't because they were critical or unkind. They were not. In fact, they were said in a completely matter-of-fact voice. There was no judgment in what he said. There was something far more shocking than judgment. There was truth. He was right. I was figuring out how to get the gun. But until he said it, I didn't know that that is what I was doing. I didn't know that my watching was really spying. I was casing the closet for a future raid, but I didn't know it. He knew me before I knew myself, and better. And he gently showed me to myself. As far as I remember, that was the first time I realized that there was more going on in me than I knew. Of course, it was not the last time. Oftentimes, the motivators for what people do are unconscious. They may not be intentionally wicked. They can be pitiful or selfish or just plain stupid. But still, they can unfold into dangerous actions. Like the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung once said, one does not become enlightened by entertaining figures of light, but rather by making the darkness visible. What was Socrates' motto? Know thyself. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and scribes about their purity laws, he looked at them with the eyes of love, with a deeper understanding and compassion than they knew. He didn't yell at them. Why do people yell anyway? He addressed their inner journey, one that they had dismissed as irrelevant, even incomprehensible. Jesus knew that the law of love can be threatening, but is ultimately liberating. Jesus hopes to walk with us, to open our eyes, to open our hearts and our minds to God's goodness all around, in friend and neighbor, in foe and stranger. God's goodness is enough to rely on, isn't it? Maybe we can start by understanding ourselves better, seeing ourselves through the eyes of God in Jesus, and then letting that understanding reach out to others. Amen. Amen.